Go ahead and if you would, turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. I come here this morning um, with a commission from Jesus Christ to preach the word. Isn't that right? Um, And so as long as I'm doing that, I'm being faithful to Jesus Christ. And so um, you can pray that that is accomplished this morning. It's a beautiful day outside. It's a beautiful season. Um, It just, you know, I ache when I'm inside doing computer work uh, because I just want to be outside enjoying beautiful weather, sunshine, the colors. And yet, this morning, as we um, engage the Word, we're going to be talking about a subject that's not so beautiful from one angle. And it's a subject that I've chosen to, to take up for a few Sundays, I don't know how many, just a few. We've never actually spoken on this topic at any length of time, uh, and I think it's extremely important that we are established in the truth of it. Um, one of the main reasons is because it is pervasive in the New Testament. Um, but even more than the New Testament, the idea of, of God's judgment is pervasive, really from the beginning pages of Scripture. Uh, matter of fact, one could argue that the first doctrine that was attacked, um, or at least the first two, was God's Word and God's, um, the doctrine of God's judgment. When Satan said, you will not surely die. There's something in that that Satan knows will If he can get rid of that, well, then he can alleviate human beings from a sense of accountability to God. And so it's no wonder that this doctrine has been attacked and mocked and scorned for however long the world's been around. But we're going to be looking at that. We're going to be continuing to look at the the, the doctrine of God's judgment, uh, namely um, the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment. So far, over the last several times that we've looked at this together, we have, at first, we looked at the language of the Scriptures. I just gave like a a list of just the verbiage, the language that the Scriptures use to capture the doctrine of hell or eternal conscious punishment or judgment. And we just saw how the New Testament declares repeatedly, over and over, that there is a destiny outlined for us in the New Testament for all those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That destiny is what the church has rightly labeled as eternal conscious punishment or eternal conscious torment. It is punishment in that it is God's just response to the wickedness of sin It is not based on random selection or arbitrary act of a flash of anger on God's part. It is a just and final response given the clear evidence of lawlessness. It will be conscious, that is the people that experience this destiny will know that they are being punished by God. They will feel all the misery and woe that comes from being under the wrath of Almighty God. And that will be for eternity. The misery and woe and torment will be forever and forever. And according to God, the language given is that it is eternal. So this is what we're looking at. We're looking at this doctrine of eternal conscious punishment. And... At one, in one sense, I'd like to be talking on other topics. In another sense, though, I think this is extremely important. Um, and I think it's extremely important for lots of reasons. I think as you, as you listen to the language of Scripture as it captures these things um, regarding judgment, it affects your prayer life. It affects you way the, view, the way you view the world. It affects your priorities. It affects the way you give. It affects the urgency of the gospel. It affects so many things. And to lose it also will affect the way you live. Your sense of urgency of the gospel will dwindle. Your sense that things will just continue on as they always have been will increase. And so, brethren, we must 
pay attention to this. And it is our Lord Jesus that spends, arguably, spends the most time on it. And so that's why I want to. Um, I want to. I want to give due time and due attention to this extremely important topic. As you read just the Gospel of Matthew alone, you find this in almost every pericope or passage that Jesus speaks on or teaches. It is everywhere. It is the, the looming assumption in the background of all of his teaching. And it's implicit and explicit in, in basically all of it. So, everything is lived with a reference to the day of judgment. And so, it's extremely important that we have it firmly fixed in our minds. Um, we don't like talking about this. We don't like to listen to it. Um, it is... Um, it is uh, grading across our fallen nature to think that we will be held accountable by a holy God. And even as Christians, we can sort of shudder, like, Chris, why are you talking about this again on Sunday mornings? This is time of joy and worship, right? Well, the reality is that I believe you will, your worship will be enhanced as you consider the doctrine of hell. Because you will truly see what you were saved from. And brethren, it is no small thing what you were saved from. Paul says, now having been justified by God, we have peace with God and we are saved from the wrath to come. The wrath of God, the the settled righteous anger of a holy God. A God who is so holy that sinless celestial beings hide their face in His presence. That's amazing. They cover their eyes. So, this is important. Now, last time I mentioned that there were opposing views to eternal conscious punishment. One view is called universalism, and one is called annihilation or conditional immortality. Um, I don't plan on dealing much with universalism, but I did try and will continue to to, um, interact to some degree with conditional immortality. Partly because I, I just think it needs attention. It's getting an immense amount of press online, And I want to give a small but focused attention to make it clear in your minds that it does not reflect the Bible's clear teaching on this subject. And by the way, if you're interested, you can go read the Council of Constantinople, where they actually address this doctrine of temporary punishment in the afterlife. And you can look there that it was actually regarded as heretical in, I think it was the 6th century. So you can go look at that. I think it's the Council of Constantinople. So it's no small thing. Um... It's no small thing, and I think it's vital to, to pay attention to it. Um, you know, again, I just think about all the time how we, it's just so easy to soften it. We want to soften it. We want to justify it so quickly. Why can God do this? And we want to f- figure out lots of ways to justify this doctrine, um, and we want to soften it. But brethren, we... We have to do justice. I don't want to make it worse than the Bible does, for sure. But I also don't want to soften it. Um, so I want, to, um, I want to, uh, to look at it a little bit further. Um, so I'll be, I'll be showing that the Scriptures clearly teach that the con- conscious punishment is eternal, lasting as long as the life of the righteous, in eternal life with God. One of the things that helps me think about this as I think about objections in my own heart sometimes that will, that will spring up, um, and of course objections in the world when they say how can a loving God consign people to hell or, or those who take offense at the eternal nature of the punishment, who say how could God punish finite sins with eternal um, retribution? How, how can these happen? One of the things that always helps me is Famous verse by the Apostle Paul. Who are you, O man? Will the clay speak back to the potter? Um, Romans 9, Paul puts us right in our place, doesn't he? Um, And it's extremely important. It's freeing, really, that we know our place. Well, what is our place? Our place is clay. And he is potter. Um, The Lord had to show up in an F5 tornado to Job to remind him, even though God had allowed all of Job's earth to be taken from him. God had to show him in a whirlwind 
that he is potter and Job is clay, that Job is created, Job is a man, and God is the infinite, almighty God of the universe. But this has to be our posture. Who are you, O man? Does the clay know better than the potter what to do with those he has made? Or to put it even more stark, because we are talking about lawbreakers here being put in hell, it is punishment after all. Does it make sense that the lawbreakers tell us how long or how terrible the punishment should be? You know, can you imagine if, if, if we started to, to open up the courts in our day to some sort of suggestion box that the criminals could give their two cents on what kind of punishment they should have? What do you think? I mean, what, what, what do you think most of them would say? Do you think most of them would, would be fair with regard to their own crimes from God's perspective? Do you think most of them think they are misjudged? I'm sure some don't. But the reality is that we are in no position, either by our being created beings or, or even more by being sinners, with all the noetic effects of sin, all the, all the perversions and all the, the justifications for our sin that are deep within us, that want to dilute this idea of God's judgment. We want to... We want to dilute it, and we want to, we want to soften it. Rather, we must have God tell us. And I hope that's your posture. I hope that's your posture. Lord, how bad is it? You know, what, what is the fate of the wicked? Truly, I want to know what it is. We want to have God tell us. And once God tells us, then we must let our view of His holiness and our view on the heinousness of sin be formed by that description. We dare not try to fit God into our man-made frameworks. One man said, just as God made man in his image, so also he makes his justice in his image. Just as God makes man in his image, and man is subordinate to God, so also God makes righteousness in his image. God is not bound by human standards of justice. He is the standard. It is not, he doesn't just simply do righteousness. Um, That is true. He is righteous through and through. He is the righteous one and he determines what is just. And people may not like that. Just because they don't like that doesn't mean it's not true. So, again, my approach just to work through the New Testament and take a brief look at each text on judgment, not every single one, obviously, but some of the main ones and draw out observations there that help shape our understanding of God's view on hell. And to be clear here, there, there are people I love that hold contrary views like conditional mortality, annihilation. Um, and I, I want to be clear that that's, that's in my heart. But I also want to be clear that I have a commission from the Lord to be plain with regard to what I see Scripture teaching. And ultimately, it's for our good. So last time I spoke on Mark 9 and Mark 5, um, Mark 9, Matthew 5, and Matthew 18, looked at the language that Jesus uses. I chose those texts because I wanted to first observe those texts that spoke of the wicked going to a place called hell. Um, I focused on this reality that the wicked actually are banished to a place called hell. It's clear in the verses that we looked at in Matthew 5, 18, and Mark 9 that hell is not some esoteric state of being. Hell is actually a place. Hell is certainly not in this world, right? You have people say that all the time. You talk with them on the street. They think, I think here is hell, right? You've, You've heard people say that. Well, it's not. Um, However bad you think it gets here, um, it is nothing (laughs) compared to hell. The language over and over is thrown into hell, cast into hell, cast into eternal fire. Over and over, this is said, this is what God does to the wicked. Somewhere in God's universe, God has determined for there to be a place called hell. It will be a specific location for all eternity where the wicked will be consigned. 
The language of fire not being quenched and worm dying not is the language of the state of affairs of those in hell. It will be horrifying and just. This morning I'd like to continue in the Gospels looking at some individual texts regarding this subject. Um, What I want to do is take one more text looking at the idea of hell and then I want to move on to some other further imagery. And um, last night we were blessed. Some friends gave us some tickets to go to Lagos Theater to go see uh, the Scarlet Pimpernel and uh, for Paige and I for date night. So it was super special, great time for us. And uh, last night they, they give out these programs as you come in and they tell you about the play. But then in the back they have a gospel message at the end of the programs. And they're very nice, nicely done programs. Um, they have a gospel message at the, at the end of the program. And uh, kind of like a tract. And it's so good. And in that little gospel message they actually play off their um, uh, vocation or, or, or play off the fact that you're at the theater and their theme of the tract is all those outside of Christ are all actors. It's interesting. All the, he, says, he says, you may not think you're an actor if you don't know the Lord, but you are. Or something like that. Speaking about hypocrisy. They show how the biblical idea of hypocrisy is acting. And then they quote this verse I want us to look at in Matthew 23. Matthew 23, 33, where Jesus tells the religious leaders, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Now, can I just say I love the Logos Theater? I mean, here's a place, very professional. They do such an amazing job, but their their mission and their purpose is clear. And these people put this verse right front and center in bold that this is what you need to escape. And if you remain in your hypocrisy, you will not. I just love that. So just a little plug for Lagos. But also just, this is, this is an aspect, a critical aspect of our message. The context here in Matthew 23 Jesus is pronouncing woes of judgment on the religious leaders of his day. Hardly, I mean, I could say that religious leaders, religious hypocrites, um, brought out the anger of Jesus more than any other group. He says that they are hypocrites, they are actors, parading as God's teachers, parading as God's examples on earth yet inside jesus says they are full of dead men's bones they are full of self-indulgence and robbery and jesus says they make others under them they're they're those they mentor twice the sons of hell as themselves calls them sons of hell jesus is just graphic he's graphic To Jesus, this is just shocking. It's, it's horrible that these men would lead people into hypocrisy and thinking that you can have this outer face and yet not have an inward renewal in love. It's just, to Jesus, it's just so angering. He has no casual, gentlemanly assessment of religious hypocrites. Sons of hell. It's gripping. I mean, it really is. I pray that none of you are hypocrites. Some of you probably are, though. Some of you kids, you might think that just by, just by looking good, right? By merely looking like, and maybe even in some ways talking like a Christian makes you a Christian, right? But what makes you a Christian is, is really loving Jesus and knowing that you need Him for sins forgiven. And knowing that you need a new heart. It's not about just looking good and making other people think that you're good, right? That's hypocrisy. But Jesus is scathing when it comes to hypocrisy. As serpents and vipers, Jesus says, they will not escape the sentence of hell. And if we are interpreting Scripture with Scripture, when we ask what is hell, we have to say, as we've already seen in other places, it is an eternal place of fire, which the wicked are cast into. 
Here the language is that of sentence, the sentence of hell. The ASV has judgment of hell. I think the KJV says the damnation of hell. Hell is punitive. Hell is a judgment of God. It is a legal, punitive consignment. Punishment for lawbreakers, or as Jesus says here, serpents. That's who go there. Serpents. Those aligned with the great old ancient serpent, Satan himself. It is so important that we remember that hell is a judicial act of executing justice. It's so important. Right now, in our world, the scales of justice are completely imbalanced. Completely imbalanced. The, the amount of sin that's being laid on the scale has it completely lopsided. There are things going on right now in our world, and last night in our world, that continue to just pile on and pile on and pile on sin that is not being dealt with by God. Evil allowed to run rampant in many places. And you may think, and people may think, that they are allowed to get away scot-free for sinful actions. But one day there will be a sentence given. One day there will be a verdict. One day every person in league with the devil, religious or irreligious, will hear those words of our Lord Jesus, depart from me. And that's the reality. It is a sentence. Now, in a couple of texts, Jesus doesn't say the word hell explicitly, but he does use the other imagery and language that is reminiscent of it. In a couple of texts to just look at here, he uses the language of furnace of fire. So Matthew 13, 42. Matthew 13, 42. The parable of the wheat and the tares, you know the parable. Son of man sows seed in the world. There's the tares, which are the bad fruit. There's the seed of the, uh, that, that becomes wheat, that is the good fruit. And Jesus says that that's the way it's going to be. Good and bad together until the end of the age. And then the angels come and they reap. And the tares are gathered up and burned with fire. So shall it be at the end of the age. Verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness. There it is again, commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Yeah, he who has ears to hear. So just some observations here. This is after the second coming. Jesus comes back. The Son of Man. He comes. And it's the end of the age. He sends the angels. These are the reapers. And they come. So this is not the intermediate state. This is about gathering up lawless ones. So of course there's some idea of punishment going on here. It's a punishment for sins committed in this life. Lawlessness. Those who just disregard God's standard of righteousness. Those who disregard God's law. Those who are lawless. The liars. The thieves. Right? The covetous. Homosexuals. Adulterers. The lawless. Everything that you were before you knew Christ. The lawless ones. It's not just sincere or kind, innocent ones that will be gathered up arbitrarily. God will never punish the innocent. God punishes those who are lawless. Those who are criminals in His world and who continue to break His laws and spurn His righteousness every day. These are the ones gathered up. I don't care how nice they seem. I don't care how many philanthropic offerings they've given. They will be gathered up one day and seen as lawless 
if they don't know the Lord. But here a new image emerges. Jesus says it's a furnace of fire. Now again, Jesus could just go around saying the wicked are going to be judged one day. But he doesn't. He gives language. (laughs) He gives language. Language that to you and I is pretty gripping. We all know what a furnace looks like, right? We all know what happens there. And it's not sin thrown into the furnace, brethren. It's people. It's people. People are thrown into a furnace of fire. Again, the language is it's a place. It's a, it's a locale. They are being thrown into. And it's hard to escape the fact that this is hell, as Jesus has already been describing. Furnace of fire. Of course, this speaks to God's holiness. God is utterly holy. God often depicted as a consuming fire. Think of the burning bush where God shows up in flaming fire. Supernatural fire, right? Fire that didn't need the bush to burn. But fire surely communicates pain. (laughs) This fire will bring pain, and there's a reason we know that. This fire, you would think, could just bring utter incineration. As those who believe in conditional immortality, they they say that, see, the fire consumes. It consumes them and incinerates them, and they become ash. So, they believe that fire is just going to do what we understand it to do. But is that the language? What is the outcome of the fire? Jesus tells us. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is what they experience in the furnace of fire. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Certainly the two terms here, weeping, gnashing of teeth, it's a conscious state of of misery and woe, distress and pain, perhaps hatred. I mean, every place in the Old Testament in the book of Acts where gnashing of teeth is mentioned, it's, it's anger. These people are mad. They've been caught. Their time is up. They're not there sorrowful because of a life lived in sin toward God. They are there mad. They blaspheme God. They hate God. They gnash their teeth. Repeat what? I said a lot. <laughs> Gnashing of teeth is, has to do with anger. These people are angry. Angry at God. Angry, perhaps, certainly at their circumstance. And they weep. There's crying. I mean, can you imagine? That's what this fire produces. This is Jesus' great deterrent. If, If obliteration or annihilation or unconsciousness was the great deterrent or non-existence, then why doesn't Jesus say it? He gives something far more dreadful. He gives the picture of people in a furnace, burning, crying, hating, grinding their teeth. It's horrific. This is not Chris. Brethren, this is reality. Furnace of fire. Weeping, gnashing of teeth. This is what it is. It's popular to say, and some often do say, that mock eternal conscious punishment. All the church is just medieval in their descriptions of hell. As being a divine torture chamber. And, 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 and we, just, we just take our view of hell from the papists in terms of scaring our subjects into submission. And there's no doubt that some men do go off into areas of speculation trying to make it more scary. But brethren, there is no other conclusion to draw than that this is absolutely horrific. It's enough to absolutely terrify. Because it will be terrifying. (laughs) And you can be sure it will be worse. 
than the language given to describe it. Just like it will be far better than the language given to describe the new heavens, new earth. Furnace of fire. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You have ears to hear? Oh, praise God you do. Because those ears are what's causing you to listen well and flee from that wrath to come. Furthermore, in verse 48 through 50, speaking of the parable of the dragnet here, where the righteous and the wicked are gathered up at the end, Jesus says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there it is again, in that place, it is a place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, same observations. It's at the end of the age. Wicked are thrown into a place, furnace of fire. It will not be filled with silence one day due to all the lifeless, unconscious corpses. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is all we get. That is what we have before us. Furnace of fire. And if that weren't bad enough, we have more imagery. Another image emerges. It's not just fire or furnace of fire or fiery hell, which is all the language we've already gone over, but there's also outer darkness. There's also outer darkness. Matthew chapter 8. Jesus has scathing things to say to the unbelieving Jewish nation. They should have recognized that their Messiah was right in front of their face, and they did not. And they will be judged for it. There's no excuse. He fulfills everything that they said that they believed. And in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is, Matthew records for us this interaction of Jesus and the Roman centurion to teach lots of things. But one of the things he wants to teach is that this Gentile's faith is far greater than any, any member of Israel's faith. Verse 10, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And now as he begins to, as he continues this thought, speaking to the Jewish people there that are unbelieving, here's what he says, I say to you that many will come from east and west. That's the nations, right? That's you and me, actually. At that time, we were the east, or west. But he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. context here again Jesus is saying many non-Jewish nations will have glorious fellowship at the table with the patriarchs of, of faith Abraham and Isaac and Jacob but for those who don't have the faith of the centurion their lot as Jesus says here is outer darkness outer Darkness. You get the picture. You get the picture. You have a table. Reclining people around this table from all over the nation sitting there with the forefathers of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the picture there is this table fellowship. It's the warmth and the joy that comes from being around table and, and commonality and fellowship together. And Jesus says that the wicked, the Jewish people here, are thrown outside, not able to enjoy that table fellowship. Jesus just gives a blanket statement, the sons of the kingdom are thrown out into outer darkness. 
And what does the outer darkness produce? Final extinction? Unconsciousness? No. The same thing the furnace of fire produces. The weeping and the gnashing of teeth. A sense of utter exclusion from all light and joy. Utter exclusion. Outer darkness. Outside. The deterrent here from Jesus again has nothing to do with annihilation. The deterrent here is the fact that you will consciously know you are not there with Abraham. You are not there with all those that have come from the east and from the west. You are not in fellowship with them. You have no light or joy or gladness or feasting. You are outside. One day sinners will know what absolute exclusion feels like for eternity. This is the language of the text. Now there's a parallel text in Luke 13. makes it even more clear. Jesus talking about those false professors and he says, you will begin to say, Luke 13, 28-29, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. There it is again. It's about those who are evil, doing evil. And he says, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out, and they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And here's Jesus saying, evildoers are banished. Depart from me into a place, weeping and gnashing of teeth, while they see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. You yourselves being thrown out. You will see. It is conscious awareness of being excluded from the life of God. You will never have it. You know, even Gwen right now, she's going through a lot of pain, and hopefully some of that's subsiding. But even in her pain... She gets warm texts, right? She gets food brought to her house, these kinds of things. The wicked will never have a reprieve. They will never have a reprieve. It will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, uh, 22, 13. Context here is this, the wedding feast. And all the joyous and jubilant feasting that happens at a wedding. Matthew 22. Those invited, some of them just says, I'm too busy, I don't want to come. And then Jesus says, well, go to the others that are in the highways and the hedges and invite them to come. And they went out and they gathered all these people the sort of low of society. And they became dinner guests for the king. But there was a man who was there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Because what's he going to say? Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot. Throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Again, there's the context. Joyous, jubilant, feasting at a wedding. There's an imposter. He's not on the guest list. He's found out. He's bound and thrown outside. You can't sneak into glory. God gives you your wedding garments. You can't create your own. And if you don't have His, you are an imposter. 
And if you are an imposter, he says here, you will be thrown outside. Banishment away from all that is warm and good and joyful. And what again does the experience produce? He says it again. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And here, just like in other places, but I'll just put a fine point on it. Here it's the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. The article is there, both. And I think in the other texts there are, the article is there too. But the weeping, it is the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. It's as if all their sorrow and pain and anger causing weeping and gnashing of teeth in this life were mere shadows to the weeping and gnashing of teeth in the next. This is the apex of sorrow because it is absolutely unrelenting. And please don't think that outer darkness is a different place than hell. Don't worry about the imagery of furnace of fire and outer darkness. Jesus is communicating with one Intense pain inflicted upon them in punishment due to their sin. The other one having to do with utter banishment and exclusion away from the life of God. Both of them harmonious in describing God's judgment. Another one, Matthew 24. I hope you start to get the sense like, oh, okay, well this is a lot more than two or three texts. This is, this is what, the third message? Again, I want to ram it down all of our minds and hearts to understand that this is, this is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He talked about it constantly, and he talked about it so that people would turn from it and understand the consequences if they didn't. He wants you to get it. Matthew 24, 48 through, through 51. 24. 48 through 51. Jesus here in the context of him talking about his second coming and that he will come back at a time when, 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 when people do not expect. And so the question is, given the fact that he's going to come back and, 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 and the fact that, that he has left us here, he says in verse 45, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master puts in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? In other words, as Jesus leaves, and as Jesus is away, he, he has entrusted to us certain giftings, certain things that we have that he's given to us for the good of our brethren and for the good of the gospel. We have work to do in this life. While he's gone, it means work. While he's gone, it means service. That's what it means. And so the question is, as Jesus says, who then is the faithful and sensible slave? Who's reliable? Who can I call on to actually invest in others with the gifts I have given them? Who is the sensible one? The one who actually thinks day by day that this life is not the only thing there is. And living in view with that day of eternity is crucial. Who is the faithful and sensible slave? Verse 46, Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect, and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's interesting here that The master is said to cut him in pieces and then assign him a place with the hypocrites in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't get hung up on the order. Sometimes guys that that hold to conditional immortality, they have a particular order that has to fit their paradigm. That is, they are banished and then they are punished and then they are annihilated. And that's sort of the order of things. Destroyed. They say destroy. I think they strain that word too much. But here you've got punishment 
seemingly happening at the beginning. The cutting in pieces happens first, and then they're assigned to that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't get hung up on the process and the, and the, and the chronology of, of what's punishment and what's, what's banishment and then what's destruction and all that. The, the scriptures just conflate and, and, and they, they, they layer in the language. The actual punishment here seems to be first. We just need to say the Bible doesn't really hold out a clear process after they're consigned to the lake of fire per se. It's just giving different language to describe the punishment. The punishment is the judgment, is the destruction, is the banishment, banishment is the eternal fire, is the weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're all features of the sentence of hell. Matthew 25, 26 through 30 Again, Jesus giving further instruction here in light of his second coming. And he speaks about the slave that had a talent that hid it, had a certain gift and did not use it for the Lord. Verse 25, he says, I was afraid and went away and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Over and over we hear this. And what's the rationale for the wicked person being thrown into into the outer darkness? This is someone who is aware of his master, is even aware of the giftings of his master. And what's his problem? Laziness. Laziness. Just not getting around to it. The book of Proverbs talks about the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. Right? Laziness. Worthless slave. Failing to use your gifts, brethren, is not an option. Choosing isolation over edification is not an option. Laziness. You think people that is that is that I mean is that punishment fit the crime? Why does someone go to outer darkness? Someone may ask a Christian. Well, One of your responses could be, well, because certain people are lazy. They've squandered what Jesus has given them. Yeah, but they said that they profess and they believe in Jesus Christ, right? Well, ultimately, the credibility of a profession is demonstrated in what they do. Not in what they think about doing. Oh, you might have so many ideas about what you think about you could do. So many nice ideas. Maybe your theology is really good and tidy. And yet you're lazy. And you're fat and inactive. Take these verses to heart. Theologically fat and inactive people that proclaim to be Christians will go to outer darkness. So there is the language of hell. There is the language of furnace of fire. There's the language of weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's the language of outer darkness. The place where the lawless go. The place where the hypocrites go. Those who pretend to be Christians, but really prefer a life of sin. Those who take advantage of Jesus' delay by living a sinful life go there. And those who are lazy and do not expend their God-given gifts for the good of others and the gospel go there.
Jesus says the wicked lazy servants go there. Those who are all talk go to hell. So it's serious, brethren. It's serious. So I want to end with a couple application points that are going to be the same every time. We must understand that hell is a place in God's universe. Hell is a place in redemptive history. And as I said last time, we know something of what it is to punish in this life, although many of our notions in this life is more reparative and and sort of, uh, um, uh, I don't want to say therapeutic, but something like that, right? Um, Our justice system wants to be a place where people are rehabilitated in some ways and not just punished, although there is... um, you do see some of just the aspect of punitive punishment in prison. But we have a sense of justice here that, that has caused us to come up with things like prisons and, and these sentences of having justice meted out for criminals. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from God, whose foundation of His throne is in righteousness and justice. And ultimately, we cannot separate God who is love from a God who is light, God who is righteous from a God who is merciful. His nature of absolute light and moral perfection means that He must punish all sinners. He cannot do otherwise. And one day, billions of people are going to experience His full justice. I say billions, I don't know how many. And this is one of the main reasons why we preach the good news. This is why the good news is so good. We preach it because hell is real. And people will go there. Family members will go there. Neighbors will go there. But we preach because some some are still being saved. Human history goes on at this moment because God is still saving people from sin and hell. And this should affect our prayer lives and our boldness and our love, our goals in life. For us who are in Jesus Christ, we cannot overstate how amazing our salvation is. We are just as guilty as all those consigned to hell. It's hard to remember that, isn't it? I mean, especially if you, you live your Christian life for a while, you just forget who you really were. But when the Lord starts to show you the unbelief of your heart and your sin, you, you can be reminded pretty quick. But when you look at our track record of sin, you know, and, and, and our track record of sin set up against the wicked, it's the exact same. Perhaps it's worse. Yet there is one major difference. One massive, eternal, game-changing variable. And that is the one who made propitiation for our sins. The Lord Jesus, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God, bore our sins in His body on the tree and took them away. He was violently killed like those lambs under the Old Covenant and banished from His Father like the goat in the wilderness taking our sins away. We get mercy because Christ gets wrath. And we get mercy because Jesus received our just punishment. What a a relief that God did not cheat when He forgave us. It is a real and sufficient atonement. We get eternal life. So brethren, I hope again you can see this is the third time talking about this. Maybe we'll have one or two more so that you're all convinced that it's a big deal. There's lots and lots of people out there who just say God can't be that way. And I just want to leave you without a shadow of doubt that it is that way. And, it's, and it is that way because sin is that way. And it is that way because God's holiness is that way. 
And the gospel is so pressing and urgent because the reality of hell is real. Um, Very simple, right? But this is not medieval teaching. This is not coming out of, you know, scare tactics of the papacy of the, you know, the 12th century. This is from the lips of your Lord Jesus. We have not looked at Paul. We have not looked at James. We have not looked at John. We have only looked at Jesus so far. Let that sink in. And brethren, whatever the Lord needs to do in you with these things in mind, just pray that He will. Maybe it's just to maximize your joy at the reality that you are free. You are free from the law that would damn you to hell because Jesus was banished and taken your condemnation. Maybe, maybe, you, just, maybe you just need that fresh reality check like, holy cow, what did I just escape? I mean, you imagine, I mean, you, 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 maybe you in your own life you know of people that have had horrible diseases or an, uh, just a, a very scary prognosis for their life and then all of a sudden the Lord heals them. I mean, when you look at them, when they find out they've been healed, or that prognosis changes, man, it doesn't even matter what happens that day. They just know that they're not going to die. They've been healed. Brethren, so many things in life just ultimately won't matter. Because we don't suffer the condemnation of the world. We won't. We will know that we deserve it, but we will know that we have received mercy from Jesus. And God, as Paul says, will demonstrate on vessels of mercy His power and His righteousness and His glory as He shows us what justice really looks like and what grace really looks like. Parents, I want to encourage you to talk to your children about the love of Jesus Christ. How much he, he, he wants children to come to Him. Jesus has a huge heart for children. But they should also understand this reality of hell. They're cute, but they too are sinners. And they need Jesus Christ. They need Him. And He says, come to Me, not because they get a free ride, but because they need Him. They don't get a free ride. And again, let this inform your prayer life. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who has made propitiation for our sins. Lord Jesus, as we stare at the cross, we see what you think of sin. And Lord, I just confess, I don't believe it. I do not believe it like I should. I have such a shallow understanding of the heinousness of sin. So shallow, Lord. Please help us to understand it. Lord, not that we can become morbid and with our heads hanging low, but that we can go to and fro sowing with weeping because we know that there is a lake of fire coming for those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Lord, give us your heart. Lord, give us incredible gratitude at our great salvation. Lord, you have accomplished for us what we cannot. Whatever we want to think about evil and suffering and all these things, one thing we know that's for sure is, Lord Jesus, you experienced evil and suffering in your own body in your own mind as you were there bearing the shame and the the heinousness of our sin. So you know what it is. And it's that bad that you had to come and rectify it. So Lord, just give us great gratitude. And for any in this room who do not know you, it is not wrong as a motivation to flee to Jesus to recognize that wrath awaits the wicked. Lord, that's a right motivation. That's totally fine. John the Baptist said, Flee the wrath to come. Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, that you would give them ears. And that they would see that you are the only Savior. 
And again, we may not understand all the ins and outs, but one thing we understand is you provided an escape. You provided a refuge for sinners. Lord, please, please work in people's hearts to take refuge in the Son. In Jesus' name, amen.